Let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's read from the beginning of the chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But I determined this within myself, that I should not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest, when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I, have, whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is real church, real situation, and we have a lot to learn from it. This church in Corinth had accusations against their own pastor. He was on the road, he was preaching the gospel, he was sharing the word all around the region. And he had said that it was his intention to come to them and to visit them again. But the Lord redirected him to not visit them again. And they began to have accusations against him, to make assumptions about him. They said, Paul is flaky. Paul is lacking in commitment. Paul doesn't really care about us. And they had their fingers pointed at Paul. Now Paul is explaining to some extent why he didn't come to them when he intended to. This is what the word tells us about the ministry of Paul and his co-laborers, Timothy and Silas. They were often jailed because they would not stop preaching the word of God. They were often beaten with rods, bruised and battered, bludgeoned, because they insisted upon giving the good news of Jesus Christ. There was one occasion when the Apostle Paul was crushed with stones and he was so mangled that they thought he was dead. They drug him outside the city and left him there thinking he was a corpse, that his soul had, had left him. He had endured a lot of sacrifice, a lot of persecution, a lot of abuse. And now this church that the Lord used him to establish was accusing him of something that was not even close to the truth, of not caring, of not being ardent, of not following through. And now Paul begins to explain, this is why I didn't come to you. Paul was very beat up. It says in the last chapter that he had the death sentence on him, that he, when he was in Asia, that he was hard-pressed beyond measure. And now we see that Paul didn't come to them in his beaten state because he knew they didn't have the maturity to deal with it. They knew that he knew that if they saw him bearing the marks of the suffering of Christ on his body, that they couldn't take it. At this point, I would hope that the Corinthian church would be realizing what fools they have been. Look at us. We were accusatory and Paul is, is so beaten that he's not coming to us. He's in such hardship. He has the death sentence upon his life, and he's withheld that from us. So I remind you of what we studied in the last session. Beware of accusations and assumptions. I hear some Bible teachers, they teach this like we're Paul. I think it's more accurate to teach it like we're the Corinthians. I haven't been through what Paul's been through. Not many of us have. In fact, hardly any of us have been through that. So to say, oh, poor you, you're misunderstood. I don't think that's the application here. Paul was misunderstood. He was falsely accused. 
But the point here is for you and I to look on and realize that a lot of times we think we know what's going on when we don't know what's going on. Let's look at it from the position of the apostle who writes this. Point number one, shield saints from sorrow. Paul was shielding the Corinthian church from the sorrow that they would have if they were to see him. Paul wasn't just being full of drama. It's one of the things that I can't stand about our current world. There are a lot of people that just like drama, and they make a big deal out of nothing. Amen? Amen. Paul wasn't making a big deal out of nothing. He was greatly persecuted. He was abused for the sake of the gospel, and now he is shielding the church from the sorrow that they would have if they were to see him in this state. We're studying things that are lofty. We're studying things that are high, but they're still in the word of God. God is preparing us for times like this. Let me ask you this. Isn't it terrible to see someone that you love suffering? Physically suffering. Usually this happens to us when somebody that we love is very sick. We pray for them, but there's a helpless feeling still. We know that our prayers are are worthwhile. We call upon God, but when we see them in their physical suffering, we're agonizing with them. We're struggling with them, and there's a part of us that feels so helpless. If you see somebody that you love dearly, and and they're hurt, your heart goes out to them, your prayers go to them, and there's a certain amount of helplessness, and there's a sorrow that we bear when we see those that we love physically struggling. Now consider this. What if that struggle was because of persecution? What if that was your spouse? What if that was your kid? What if that was your parent? What if that was your good friend? Would you not be tempted, possibly, to say, why don't you just tone down the preaching a little bit? You don't have to stay in this city. You don't have to be so ardent about the proclamation of God's word. You can back off a little bit and you won't be suffering so terribly. Now, I'm not telling you to abandon Christ, but do you really need to be so bold? Do you really need to state the truth in this, in this way? Because look at what it's costing you. If that person were your dear loved one, would you not be tempted to go down that road? To remind you, to quote what my father said, Paul, can't we just stay at Starbucks? Can't we just pet the camels? Do we really need to press on and present the word of God? Do we really need to preach the gospel? Can we just take a vacation? We're beaten, we're bruised. There would be that temptation from an immature Corinthian to say, Paul, back off a little bit. Also consider this, maybe this is more of you. Where are your persecutors, Paul? Show me, I'll retaliate. Where are those who, some of you shook your heads, you admit it. Where are those who are doing harm to you? Where are those who are beating you? Where are those who have abused you in this way? I know how to take care of this. You don't know how to do it, obviously, because you're just continuing, continuing to preach, but I know how to deal with this. And I'll go to those cities and to those people who have hurt you, and they won't be hurting you anymore. Do you see how the immature mind operates, the mind apart from God operates? And so we have Paul wisely shielding these saints from sorrow because they didn't have the maturity to deal with the truth that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's what the Bible says. That if we live godly lives, 
we're going to suffer for it. Now, we might not suffer today as much as Paul and Timothy and Titus did, but still the suffering is there. And look how he shielded them. Have you ever protect, protected a child from knowing something or seeing something because you knew they weren't ready for it? I think we understand what that's like. The, immature, the immaturity of the child can't deal with seeing something that terrible, so you, you shield them from it. In a spiritual sense, that's what the Apostle Paul is doing. He knows through the leading of the Holy Spirit, they're not ready for this. They're going to deal with it in a fleshly way, in a way that is very sorrowful, in a way that's very vindictive, in a way that's very immature, so he does not go to them. At this point, I would hope that the Corinthians are realizing, boy, were we wrong about our assumptions. People might not always understand. They might even be suspicious of the way that you're living, but you don't always need to fully disclose everything that's going on. I think we've been in that situation before. Most of you have. You come and people are bombarding you, and they don't really know what you're going through. And they're submitting things to you that are of pretty small consequence compared to what you're dealing with, and God is teaching you to have compassion on them, even though they don't know what's going on in your life. They don't know the deep struggles that you're facing. Although I've never faced struggles like Paul and his comrades faced. Verse 4, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. So look at 4 that we just read. The Corinthians also needed to know some of the suffering that Paul endured. He wrote in anguish, it says here, not so they would be grieved, but why? So that they would know they were loved. When they saw Paul's suffering, when they saw this difficulty, they were supposed to realize, look how loved I am, that this man and his fellow co-laborers are willing to sacrifice in this way. The crybaby Corinthians needed to hear Look, I love you. I'm willing to risk my life to give you the gospel. I'm willing to risk my life and my well-being to make sure that you're discipled in the Lord. So do you see the balance that Paul is now giving to us through the word of God? He wants them to know about the suffering, not so they can be sorrowful, but so that they can realize how loved they are. The word of God to spread the word of God costs something. It costs something great for many people. We often don't see what it has cost Christians throughout the ages for us to have this book, this word of God. Look how loved we are, yes, by God, but in this case, look how loved we are by our fellow Christians, that they're willing to sacrifice, risk their lives and their well-being so that we could follow Jesus in truth. How much should I share so that they know they're loved? And how much should I hold back so they won't be overburdened? The Spirit will lead you in that. Now skip to verse 12. There's another reason that Paul was sorrowful and did not stop in Corinth. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit. 
because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Paul also hurried on his way because he was looking for Titus. Titus was also a preacher of the gospel. He was a pastor. He was an evangelist. evangelist, And Paul expected to find Titus in Troas. And when he got there and he couldn't find Titus, most likely he wondered, is he dead? Is he imprisoned? Is he beaten? Where is Titus, this man who does the work of the ministry with me? Where, so he moves his way quickly to Macedonia and does not stop in Corinth because he's looking for Titus. Now you might say, oh, that's a bad priority. Shouldn't he go to the weak instead of to the strong? Well, he's already given us some explanation why he didn't go to them in their immaturity. But realize this, that he's, he has a heart for his comrades in Christ. And this is pretty common, and it's actually correct, that we know who we co-labor with. We know who's actually doing the work with us, and truthfully, who is just watching. Titus was valuable to the cause of Christ. Paul knew this. He had a heart for this man. So he says, I'm moving on to find Titus. I want to make sure that he is continuing, that he hasn't been persecuted in a way that's taken him off the track. I want to be there to encourage him to, to continue. So after seeing this shielding saints from sorrow, let's continue reading now and go back to verse 5 and think about this Corinthian church. If anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Point number two, and I'll try to explain this, is don't swing from liberalism to legalism. We're prone to that. Don't swing from liberalism to legalism. Here's the situation. There was a man at this church in Corinth, and he had sins. When he was confronted about his sin, he refused to turn from it. But now, he has repented. He's had a change of heart. He's turned from his sin to the Savior, and he needs forgiveness from the church. He needs forgiveness from the saints. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 gives us the background on this, and since it's close, let's turn back to that book, 1 Corinthians 5, 1. And here is this one who needs now to be forgiven. This was his former situation. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man 
has his father's wife. Now, when I studied this as a kid, I thought, why would he like this way older woman? Like, that just, it didn't make sense to me. Like, that's kind of odd. You're like, why would he have his father's wife? Well, most likely, the case was this. His mom died. Say his dad was 40, right? His mom died. He's 20. His dad remarries a 26-year-old and moves her into the house. That's more likely the situation. You have a younger man and a younger woman. He might even be closer to his stepmom's age than his dad is. So now Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians, there's this man among you, and he's having sex with his stepmom. And when it comes to those who don't know Christ, they would even be ashamed of something like this. But you're not. This was his previous situation, this man's situation. And you are puffed up, in verse 2, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. How could Paul judge somebody? Doesn't the Bible say they were not supposed to judge? Well, clearly what this man was doing was wrong according to God, right? In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So this man ran off with his stepmom. Unbelievers would even be ashamed of this. But look at the church's attitude. They were not mourning because of this sin. Instead, they had an anything goes attitude. They had not only allowed the immorality, but it says here that they were prideful about it. We're not closed-minded and old-fashioned. Look, there's a guy who's even having sex with his stepmom. It's all good. God is love. That was their mentality. That was their way of thinking. Now, the disciplinary structure of the scripture here says that this prideful sinner should be separated from the church. Doesn't it say that? Let his sin school him to his senses. Turn him over even to Satan because a little bit of contamination will contaminate everyone. A little bit of cancer is going to spread very quickly to a lot of places. A little bit of yeast will affect the whole lump of dough. You can't just put leaven in a little bit of the lump. It's going to go to, to all of it. So this is the previous situation of this man. At first, I want you to see that the Corinthians were very liberal, weren't they? When they received their first letter, they're like, hey, we don't really care. It's just part of life. God is love. Who are we to say anything about the way people live, even though God's commands in regards to immorality are very, very clear? They had refused at first to separate from this unrepentant fornicator and adulterer. But in 2 Corinthians, they've gone from extreme liberalism to what? Legalism. So even though this man has now seen the error of his ways, they're like, nope. Even though you've said you're sorry, even though you've gotten right with God, you are so bad, we're not going to forgive you. We are not going to comfort you. And Paul says, 
don't swing from that liberalism to legalism because this person, this offender, may get swallowed up in their sorrow. Consider this. You've committed a sin that is very shameful. And you've lived in that sin, in that rebellion for quite some time. But the Lord in his mercy has been heavy upon you. Have you been in that situation before where you're living in rebellion and your good and loving God is just reminding you all the time of his mercy and of his love? And he's not saying, first and foremost, that you're a loser. He's saying, leave your sin and come back to me. Do you know what that's like? That hand of God, that calling of God on your life to return to him, to repent, is a wonderful thing. And then as you respond to God and finally leave behind what you know is wrong and pursue the Lord who you know is good, the people who are Christians won't receive you. Do you see how that would, would lead, to, lead to sorrow? They won't forgive you. Wouldn't you be overcome, possibly overcome with sorrow, knowing that you're forgiven by God, but not seeing forgiveness from God's people? So don't swing from being liberal to being a legalist. Liberalism, or licentiousness, you may want to call it. It's that anything goes mentality. It's the norm in the American church. Let's not do anything. Let's not say anything. Let's just let everybody live the way they want to live, even if they're a professing Christian. God has no wrong or right. What, what a lie, right? That's liberalism. But then legalism is the laws above all else. You've sinned. You've done something terrible. You'll get no mercy from us. Do you realize that the same church that can be very liberal can also be very legalistic? That the same Christian who at one point is very liberal can also be very legalistic. Sometimes we think in our minds, oh, are they a legalistic person or a liberal person? And the truth is, is we're so messed up that we swing back and forth between the two instead of sticking to what the good word of God says. It's like overcorrecting when you're driving, right? Neither extreme is correct. Neither extreme is Jesus. We can fall off the balance beam in one direction or the other. Beware of overcorrecting. Driving during the learner's permit phase is a learning experience, isn't it? It's not just a learning experience for the person who is learning to drive. It's a learning experience for the teacher, isn't it? I'm in that phase where I'm teaching my kids to drive. I've, one has his license you know, right now, one with her permit, one soon to get his permit. And you learn a lot when you're teaching during that learner's permit phase. As the teacher, you learn a lot because you realize this, that you're doing things that are protective and right and defensive automatically. They've become a part of your good driving practice. And then when you see somebody else who doesn't have those habits built in, you're thinking, this is really dangerous. That's why I speak of overcorrecting, isn't it? You're going down the road, and, and if you've been driving for quite a long time or even a few years, you know that if you're getting a little close to oncoming traffic, 
you just make a slight adjustment, right? It's, it's okay, I'm hugging the center line a little too much to the left. I'm getting a little close. I'm going to make a slight adjustment. But if you don't have the experience, if you don't have the maturity, if you don't have that time behind the wheel, what happens sometimes? You realize you're getting a little close to oncoming, and since that's not good, this must be right, <laughs> right? And then you're like, it didn't need to be a large adjustment. I don't know the percentage on that angle, but it's not 90 degrees, <laughs> right? So and all of a sudden, your danger on the right is the ditch or the bank or the guardrail. Such it is with us. The Bible gives us the straight and narrow. God's good word gives us, this is how to stay right where you're supposed to be in the Lord and follow him. Stay away from the, the liberalism. It's clearly not of God. Stay away from the legalism. Jesus rebuked those who, who were entrenched in their sin, whether it was pride and the condescending attitude or it was sexual immorality. Neither one are correct. Look at verse 11. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. I mentioned this in the last session. Why is it that we tend to gravitate to one of those two erroneous extremes? Why is it that it seems as though we struggle with either being too legalistic or too liberal? Well, it's because it's one of Satan's devices, isn't it? It tells us right here that we can be taken off guard by the evil one, correct? And he can get us being too legalistic because if he can't get you to be really worldly, he'll get you to be really, really judgmental. And he'll get you to make a lot of assumptions when you shouldn't be making assumptions and accusations when you shouldn't be making accusations, right? He'll get us with his tricks, with his strategies, with his devices one way or the other. Yes, it's our sinful nature, but it's also the enemy who says, if I can keep them being legalistic, they're not going to be a light for Christ. If I can make them really liberal and make them like anything goes and there is no wrong or right, then they'll be so, they won't be prone to preach the truth. So look at this. Unforgiveness comes in. Legalism comes in. And it's one of the devil's tactics. He wants us to be resentful. He wants us to be in the bondage of bitterness. He wants us to hold grudges. It's one of his devices. It keeps us from shining with God's grace. It keeps us centered on ourselves instead of others. Don't fail to forgive. It's sin to not forgive. It's a sin of omission. To not forgive when we should forgive. To not offer mercy when mercy should be offered. It's a grave error. It is to step into the snare of the enemy. That's what verse 11 is saying. So how do we know when to separate or when to extend comfort? How do we know when to apply 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and when to apply 2 Corinthians chapter 2? How do we know when discipline is the loving thing to do or when restoration is the loving thing to do? 
Now, some would say that comfort is always the loving option. But should you comfort someone who is insistent about holding on to their sin? Should we restore someone who isn't repentant? You said no to both of those, I hope, in your mind, in your heart. It's very clear in the scriptures, yet we get it botched up a lot. A woman who was caught in adultery. Jesus did not just say, neither do I condemn you. He also said, go and sin no more. He said, leave that lifestyle. Leave that direction. Repent. Make a U-turn. Follow me. In that, there is no condemnation. It's also true that if she would not leave the lifestyle of immorality, that she would be condemned. That's the truth. It's clear in the scriptures. Proverbs puts it this way, Proverbs 28, 13. He who covers his sins will not prosper. Listen. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Has the sin been forsaken? Are we still blaming it on somebody else? Are we still making excuses? Are we still trying to justify it in some way? If so, we haven't turned. Today, if anyone needs to turn from their sin, to turn from that lifestyle, to turn away from what they know is against God's good commands, then do it. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, so shall he reap. But if that sin has been forsaken, no more excuses. Lord, here I am. I'm ashamed. I don't, I don't deserve. I think of the prodigal coming home to his father. Did he say, Dad, you shouldn't have dropped so much money in my lap. You know me. I'm a big spender. I'm going to go out and live, live high and, and blow my money and party. No, he had no more excuses. In his mind, he had rehearsed and said, I'm no longer willing to be called your son. I, just let me be one of your servants. Now, he didn't get to say all of that when he got to his dad, but that was the intention of his heart, right? As soon as his father saw him coming, he just ran to him and, and hugged him. If you need to come home to your heavenly father today, maybe this is for you. To, to leave your sin behind and say, I don't have any more excuses for that. I'm, I don't deserve. I'm unworthy. Now go to seven, middle of seven. You ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. So after we are reminded to not swing between liberalism and legalism, now we get this point. Forgive so sor sorrow won't swallow up the offender. Forgive. The command to forgive. I might be the person who needs forgiveness the next time. You might be the person who needs forgiveness the next time. So extend forgiveness to the repentant brother or sister. There is no doubt that repentance is right. And there's also no doubt that forgiveness is right. On what basis do we forgive? Why do we forgive? With whose strength do we forgive? In whose example do we forgive? Colossians 3.13 
bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. If you've been forgiven by Jesus, then forgive your repentant brother, your repentant sister. That's what the word is saying to us, isn't it? If since you've been forgiven, God has given you the capacity to forgive others. And even though I don't understand this, I'm going to say it. Because Jesus has forgiven you, he has given you the capacity to forgive anyone of anything. I don't know how the forgiveness is that big, but I know that since you have experienced his grace and he's washed you clean and received you back to himself, that by his spirit, he gives you and me a supernatural forgiveness for each other. I cannot explain that peace. Now, the Bible says that we should be at peace with all men. That as far as our part is concerned, that he can give us that supernatural peace. Do you have a grudge against somebody this morning and do you feel justified in it? Sometimes we hold grudges against people we don't even know. My wife reminds me that she holds a grudge against the governor and we've never actually talked to him before. <laughs> but she's, she grudges against him. Gavin, you know who I'm talking about, right? She's grudging the governor. I'm like, Michelle, we don't even know Gavin. <laughs> she still got a grudge against him. We know it's not right. She knows it's not right. But it's harder when it's somebody who's really, really close to you. It's easier for me to point at the governor's mansion and be critical. But how about when it's really, really close to home and you've been hurt in a way that you can't even describe? The Lord is telling us that we need to forgive so the offender won't be swallowed up in their sorrow. I think you can understand a piece of that. But also, the bondage of bitterness is no place to live. There's so much freedom in forgiveness. Freedom for us when we're forgiven, amen? And freedom for us when we forgive others. It's not just about us being forgiven, although that is glorious, and it's the beginning of how we learn to forgive but it's this amazing forgiveness and the freedom that comes from it because God has forgiven us. Therefore, we in turn can forgive others. God does this work and it is mind-boggling. I must clarify again regarding forgiveness and I'm asking you to apply some wisdom because you can completely forgive and still not be close friends. You are not commanded to commence close friendship. In fact, all of us should be purposeful about who we're close friends with. So in this situation with this man in Corinth, should we get his stepmom to comfort him? <laughs> Why not? I think that we sh they should get together, just cry on one another's shoulders, the same person that stumbled with the same sin in the same sin that you stumbled in? A lot of times we sin because we think we're not going to fall. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, it says this, let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So the question for me and you, in this forgiveness, 
will we step in the same pit that we stepped in before? Because we're overestimating ourselves. There's a pretty good chance, and I know you don't like to talk about chances, but absolutes, that this young man thought, oh, I can endure the temptation of, of my stepmom. <laughs> he couldn't. And there's a good chance that his stepmom thought, oh, I can endure the temptation of my stepson. And she didn't. She couldn't, right? So when we talk about forgiveness, I want you to realize something or admit something that you already know. God is able to take our sin and forgive us and remember it no more. Are you able to do that? No, you're not. And our, it's not, I wish that our memories were washed away, but we're still to be on guard. So there are those that misuse this and they say, let's pretend like nothing ever happened. Well, in regards to forgiveness, yes. But in regards to guarding ourselves against sin, no. Don't become the judgmental one who says, you're not forgiving the way that you should because you're not commencing the type of friendship or the closeness that we had before. Maybe that's a guard. Isn't there a lot of wisdom in not making provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts? There certainly is. Have you been forgiven by God? Your forgiveness, your eternal destiny depends on it. Forgiveness by God. Your relationship with God depends upon it. Forgiveness. Your victory in this life depends upon it. All of us have sinned. And the Bible goes on to explain in other passages that we've fallen short, but even that the very best we can do is like used toilet paper. Now, I know you're used to it saying filthy rags, but maybe that helps you a little more to get the cultural and historical context that we, when we bring our good stuff to God, it is no good. We don't have anything good to give God. We're wretched sinners. Amazing grace. We sang the revised version this morning. It just rolls off our lips. It saved a wretch like me. It sounds so beautiful until we stop and think, I'm a wretch. Not a person who needs a little bit of help, but a person who is disastrous without God. All of us are sinners. We're wayward. We're wretches apart from the Lord. But here's the good news. If you'll admit that you're a wretch, confess and forsake your sin, he will save you. He'll forgive you of your sins. He'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He is able to forgive you from every single evil action, every single evil thought, every single evil intention. Just stop for a second and think about how deep that forgiveness is. He's the first forgiver. He's the one that teaches us how to forgive. He's the one who washes the repentant sinner clean. Have you known that forgiveness? Do you know it today? There's great freedom in forgiveness. It's a new destiny. It's, it's heaven instead of hell. It's a walk with God instead of a walk away from God. It's to become his child instead of 
somebody who's afar off. You're brought in. Even though we're foreigners because we're sinners, he brings us right into his house and makes us his sons and daughters. Now, how can God do this? How is it possible that he can forgive us of so much error, of so much sin? He does it. He does this forgiveness by giving his life for us. He gave his life on the cross. He suffered the death of crucifixion so that you and I could have our sins paid for and be forgiven. Do you know the forgiveness of Jesus? If you know it, it will set you free. And it will also give you, listen to this, the capacity to forgive others. There's a lot of bondage in that that we've spoken of. It's part of our sin where we won't forgive. Well, we can't forgive unless we have experienced ultimate forgiveness. Today is the day for you to receive. It's the day for you to believe. It's the day for you to step into newness of life, the life of Christ. And not only have your sins lifted, but have the grudges that you have against anyone else lifted also. Because how can I stand here in great forgiveness and then hold a grudge against you? I've been forgiven a lot. So have many of you. Therefore, you have a lot of forgiveness to give. Have you abandoned your sin? If so, there is forgiveness from God and there's forgiveness of sins. You're turning, you're confessing your sin and you're confessing Christ. You're forsaking your sin and you're following him. If you have abandoned your sin, there is forgiveness from the Lord and from your fellow Christians. Are you the one who needs to extend forgiveness? We may not want to separate from the unrepentant person, but if they've not repented, we're called to separate. We may not want to forgive, but if they've repented, we are called by God to forgive. To much is given, much is required, the Bible says. Have you been given much grace? Have you been given much love? I have. If that's true of you, now you are called to give much grace and to give much love. I am so thankful that God reminds me over and over again in his word how to do this and where the strength comes from. Because I read it and I literally think, I can't forgive certain people. But then the Lord reminds me, it's not in your strength. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Jeremy and Eli are going to come up, and I want you to listen, please. It's just, they're just going to get plugged in. These are the lyrics that we're going to sing, and it's just an amazing prayer. Listen. We've fallen short. We've wandered far from your ways. Forgive us, O Lord. We've sinned against your name. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. This is a song of repentance. This is a plea to your heart. Would you purify us, Lord? God, thank you for being willing to purify us. You carried the cross. You suffered on the cross in order for us to be pure. You are willing, Lord. And we sing this to you right now. And we throw ourselves upon your mercy. We ask for your strength. We pray that you would teach us about your forgiveness. 
we come to you and, and we pray that you would rid us of any excuses that we might be fronting. We come to you and we pray that you would teach us what a U-turn really is. Not just an adjustment, Lord, but a, a complete turnaround from what needs to be abandoned to come to you. I thank you, Lord, for what you recorded in your word about so many churches throughout the ages. We know the truth is, is that we haven't changed that much, that this all applies to us, Lord. We thank you for being a, a God of precision, just putting your hand right on the piece of us that, that needs help, that needs cleansing. We also thank you for being a God of restoration. Oh, to be restored, to be new, to be cleansed. How sweet it is. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.